0: I invite you to return with me this morning to the book of Romans, to Paul's letter to the Christians at Rome, that is, where we'll continue in our series of sermons, picking up in the fifth chapter with the first and second verses, Romans chapter 5, that's where we go. You may remember that Paul has carefully crafted this letter so far as to urge upon us, upon all his readers, the need for justification for being made right with God because of our sins, the sins by which we have offended him, having broken his law, having estranged ourselves from him, made ourselves his enemies, in fact, as we saw last week, But out of the richness of God's grace, God has justified us freely. Freely to us, that is, but at great cost to Himself. He has redeemed us by the blood of His Son, by the blood of Christ. God Himself, in other words, God Himself has satisfied His own wrath, His own penalty in our place having undergone his own wrath for us in Christ Jesus on the cross. Well, now here in chapter 5, Paul is laying out to our view some of the blessings that flow from our justification. Last week, we considered the peace we have with God and the peace of God that we enjoy, both objectively, that is, unchangeably, really, truly, between ourselves and, and God, and subjectively. That is the peace that we experience in our hearts, that we feel and know. But peace is not the only blessing that we receive from God when he justifies us. The blessings go on as we do this morning, but not until first we go to God in prayer and to ask that he show us these blessings in the preaching of his word. Father in heaven, do this we pray, as you are pleased to do and have done so often in this house, open our hearts, the eyes of our hearts, which is faith, to see, the ears to receive and to hear marvelous things from your law. Father, conform us more and more to the glorious image of Christ, your Son, and cleanse us by your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Sometimes we as Christians, let us admit it, spend too much time looking in one of two directions. We're either looking back to what's come before or ahead to what's coming in the future. Now, there's nothing wrong with either of those, of course. Looking back is something the scripture itself does. Often has us looking back to see, for instance, the faithfulness of God in the past to our spiritual fathers and mothers. We look back on the sacrifice of Christ on the cross once for all, and that too is important. In like manner, there's nothing wrong with looking back in your own lives and seeing the way that God brought you to himself, to a saving knowledge of his son. Some of you have... Very interesting and dramatic conversion experiences and stories about how God awakened you and changed your heart and life by His Spirit in remarkable ways. And then on the other hand, we spend time looking ahead. And the Bible itself does that too. Often, often our eyes are set on the future and on the great things that God is going to do for His people in the future. That too is good and right. And we will do some of that even this morning. But there is another direction in which to look. Not only on the past and on the future, but on the present. The Bible has plenty to say about that too, about the right now. Right here in this passage there are two blessings, two present blessings in the life of the Christian that flow from Our justification from our having been made right with God. The first one to consider this morning is this. Because we have been justified freely in Christ Jesus, we have access to God's grace. Verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. I will confess to you, frankly, this morning, that I find myself agreeing with the Apostle Peter this morning that there are some things in Paul's letters that are difficult to understand. <laughs> I've wrestled this week with this verse, with this phrase. What what does this mean in verse 2? Access into this grace to try and understand exactly what Paul means so as to preach this faithfully to you. Paul uses similar language in another letter, twice in a letter to the Ephesians to speak of the access we have through Christ to God. Ephesians 2.18, for through him we have both We both have access in one spirit to the Father, and again in 3, verse 12 of that book, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. I say both of those passages in Ephesians speak of the access that we have to God. But here, we don't read about access to God, we read about access to grace. There is a difference. Isn't there? Yes, there is a difference in that the language is clearly different. In the letter to the Ephesians, it's access to God. Here, it's access to grace. And we know that God is not his grace, and grace is not God. One flows from the other. God's grace from God. One comes from the other, not the other way around. We get a clue from Paul himself about what he means with that phrase that follows in verse 2, the grace in which we stand. Now that helps a little bit. It appears that what Paul is describing here is a certain standing that we have before God in His grace. A standing that we might describe this way, as a standing in divine favor. Through Christ, in whom we have believed, we have access to the place of divine favor, the divine favor that Christ himself enjoys before his Father's face. That, Christian, is where you are standing. You are standing in the grace of God, wrapped in the robes of of the righteousness of Christ, which were given freely to you when he took your sins on himself and gave Him his righteousness to you in return, in exchange. And placed that righteousness on your account. Isn't that marvelous? Isn't that wonderful to consider? You stand before God where Christ stands before God, in his favor, in God's good pleasure. You. As God the Father smiles on His Son, so He smiles on you. In fact, looking on you, He sees Christ, for it is Christ's righteousness made yours by justification that God looks upon. Everything that divided you from God, all of it, the sin and wickedness and transgressions, it's all Wiped away. Now we're ready to consider those parallel passages in Ephesians because having access to God's grace, we have also access to God. God and his grace, of course, are not the same thing. But having the one, we have access to the other. By grace, we may come to God and coming to him, find him our all in all. One of the commentaries I consult regularly in the preparation of these sermons on Romans has these things to say about this axis, which we have. It says, rightly, that the word also connotes an introduction or an ushering into. Following that thought, this commentator finds a picture here of being ushered into the presence of royalty, It is also, he notes, regularly used for the approach of the worshiper to God. Just what we're doing here this morning. Quote, it is as if Paul was saying Jesus ushers us into the very presence of God. Jesus opens the door for us to the presence of the king of kings. And when the door is open, what we find is grace. Not condemnation, not judgment, not vengeance, but sheer, undeserved, unearned, unmerited, incredible kindness of God. But there is another picture, he goes on to say, in late Greek usage, the word also refers to the place into which ships would come. It is the word for harbor or haven. Here's what he draws from that, but if we take it in that meaning, it means that so long as we tried to depend on our own efforts, we were tempest-tossed, like mariners striving with a sea which threatened to overwhelm them completely. But now that we have heard the word of Christ, we have reached at last the haven of Of God's grace. And we know the calm of depending not on what we can do for ourselves, but on what God has done for us. Because of Jesus, we have entry into the presence of the King of Kings, we have entry into the haven of God's grace. Well, even if that word was not used that way until after Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, it still is an accurate description of the situation. We have found safe haven. We have come into the harbor of God's grace. And here we stand, safe and sound. And there's no place that we'd rather be. No place. That's the first present blessing. The present blessing of those who are in Christ by faith, that they enjoy right now, that we enjoy this very day. Let us never take it for granted. We have access to God's grace. The second present blessing to consider this morning is this. Because we've been justified freely in Christ Jesus, we have hope. Hope of what? Hope of heaven. Now you say, well, wait a minute. Wait, I thought you were talking about present blessings. That's not into the future. But I am talking about present blessings. We have right now hope of glory. Verse 2, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That we do in this house. Every week in worship, the very worship itself that we give to the Lord here is a foretaste of heaven. We are laying hold of heaven. Here in the sanctuary, we put, as it were, one foot into heaven already. We have in worship a foretaste of heaven. Nowhere are we ever any closer to heaven on this earth than we are right now, right here. Save, of course, for the day that we actually take our first breath of heaven's air. We live out of that hope of glory. Even this morning, we sang to God as we brought our tithes and offerings to Him. Remember, we we sang how grateful that we are right now for hope of heaven. Right now. What do we mean by hope of glory? Do we mean hope so kind of hopes, or wringing our hands and saying, oh, I hope, I sure hope I end up in heaven and not in hell. Is that the kind of hope we're talking about? No. What, what it means is that we are already now assured of the outcome of our lives, of the final outcome and eternal destiny. That is the sense of hope in the Bible, not a fond wish as in I hope that will enter glory. Hope in the Bible is confidence. It is a confident expectation based on the presence of the Holy Spirit and His communication of the gospel in our hearts. Our hope is not some dismal guess at the future. It is a confident expectation. There's no wishing upon a star. There's a confidence in the Word of God. Listen to the way hope is used in the Bible. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to the grave. And again, our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. And again, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before the word of the the truth, the gospel. Colossians 1, "To To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his majesty, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In Titus, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. In Hebrews, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Our Titus 2, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We can multiply the examples this morning, of course, but you get the point. When the Bible speaks of hope, it means certainty. It means confidence. So when we speak of the hope of glory, what it means is that we are certain now of glory. And even to see God's glory. And even then again, to be glorified ourselves by God, according to the Bible. For we shall see Him, the Scripture says, and be made like Him. And that you may bank and never fail. Not only so, Christians, but you will find this. You will find that your hope was in fact not nearly high enough. Not only will your hope not be disappointed, you will find, dear flock, that the glory of God is much, much, much more, not less. Than you ever anticipated or imagined. I suspect that you will have long forgotten about hearing this sermon this morning when that hope reaches fruition and you see it yourself. It may not be the case, it may be in a moment, maybe this afternoon. But I suspect that I may well have forgotten that I even preached this sermon to you. But if I have not, I will be telling you that day, told you so. You will find that your hope is not too strong, not too high, but too weak, too low. The point is, this is a thought akin to other places in Scripture where a future state is already said to to exist in the present by means of having grasped it by faith. It is a present reality. By faith we have eternal life, the Bible says. Our citizenship is in heaven now. And we are seated at the right hand of Christ in the heavenly places. You can think of other passages that speak the same way. For Paul, the hope of heaven was as real as the reality itself and just as present. It was present to him every day. And he wanted the same for the Christians to whom he ministered. He wanted it by the sacred spirit who lived in him. He wanted the same for you. One of the same for you as it was for an important figure in the mid 20th century English, in mid 20th century English Christianity, a Cambridge scholar of ancient languages. His name was Basil Atkinson. He was a lifelong bachelor. He lived first with his mother and then with his sister. He was something of an eccentric, Atkinson was. He rode an old bicycle across the campus, of Cambridge. His official role in the school was keeper of ancient manuscripts. He had a voice that was often mimicked. Being, however, a man of good humor, he used to tell the story on himself of having addressed a meeting of the University of London's Christian Union, only to have the moderator artlessly tell the audience after he sat down that in tomorrow's meeting they were to have Uh, speaking to them, two undergraduates from Oxford who were perfectly normal human beings. But Basil Atkinson was a devout and prayerful Christian. And he was a good friend and encourager of Christian university students, including a young man, a young student by the name of John Stott, whose writings, as many of you know, have themselves proved a great asset to the church in our generation and will no doubt for generations to come. Atkinson was also a fearless preacher of the gospel. He'd often preach in the open air at Cambridge, which, uh, as I'm sure you know, is not something looked kindly upon in university towns. In one of his open air sermons, he mentioned heaven. What do you know about heaven? Asked one of the students who were heckling him. And with his famous smile, Basil replied, I live there. Thomas Ken, the 17th century English bishop and hymn writer, said a similar thing of his brother in law, Isaac Walton, the friend of John Donne and father of the sport of fishing. His complete angler is the third most often published book of English literature after the Bible and the works of Shakespeare, having run now some 300 editions. Ken was himself a godly man. We sing his hymns, many of them, as you know, in our own worship. A godly man and who knew godliness when he saw it. And he said of Walton, of this just man let this due praise be given. Heaven was in him before he was in heaven. How could he say such a thing of his brother-in-law? Was heaven really in him before he was in heaven? Well, yes, in this sense, the hope of heaven, the certainty of heaven lived in his heart, it burned in his breast, so that it was as much true as possibly it could be. You have this same hope, Christians, today, right now. I know you do. Now feed it, and nourish it, and strengthen it, that certainty, that hope of heaven, thinking often on it. As Paul did. So that it simply comes, as it does right here in this passage and so many others of Paul's, comes spilling over the rim of your heart and across your lips. And even over your pen. As it did the poet Christina Rossetti. Once in a dream I saw the flowers that that bud and bloom in paradise. More fair are they than waking eyes have seen in all this world of ours. And faint the perfume-bearing rose, and faint the lily on its stem, and faint the perfect violet compared with them. I heard the songs of paradise, each bird sat singing in its place, a tender song so full of grace it soared like incense to the skies. Each bird sat singing to its mate, soft, cooing notes among the trees. The nightingale herself were cold to such as these. I saw the fourfold river flow, and deep it was with golden sand. It flowed between a mossy land with murmured music, grave and low. It hath refreshment for all thirst, for fainting spirits' strength and rest. Earth holds not such a draft as this from east to west. The tree of life stood... Budding there, abundant with its twelvefold fruits. Eternal sap sustains its roots. Its shadowing branches fill the air. Its leaves are healing for the world. Its fruit the hungry world can feed. Sweeter than honey to the taste, and balm indeed. I saw the gate called beautiful and looked, but scarce could look within. I saw the golden streets begin and outskirts of the glassy pool. O harps, O crowns of plenteous stars, O green palm branches, many leaved. Eye hath not seen, nor ear hath heard, nor heart conceived. I hope. To see these things again but not as once in dreams by night to see them with my very sight and touch and handle and attain to have all heaven beneath my feet for a narrow way that once they trod to have my part with all the saints and with my God. Amen.